Hi, this is Paul Spellman. Thanks for joining me again with my podcast, which I call I Have a Story About That. This is episode number seven, and this one's a little personal. Today is June the 3rd. Uh, this would have been my uh, father's 94th birthday. We lost him last August at the uh, tender age of 93, and the family is uh, remembering him uh, today. And a week from now or so is uh, Father's Day. So I thought in uh, memory of my dad and lots of dads everywhere and with Father's Day coming up, I thought I might tell some stories of my dad's days in the Navy. So this one I think I'll call uh, Episode 7, uh, Dad's Navy. Dad was born in 1925 in uh, Midland, Texas. Grew up in uh, San Angelo on June 3rd, 1943. He turned 18 years old. A few days after that, he graduated from high school. And not too long after that, he enlisted in the United States Navy. In fact, one of the stories he liked to tell was that um, when he took the physical exam, uh, the doctor there had a couple of concerns and wasn't too sure that Dad uh, was going to be able to pass the exam. So he made some notes, and then he sent my dad out to the clerk to uh, report the clerk said, um, everything okay? Dad said, yep, everything's fine. So they signed him up. So that was in the uh, summer of uh, 1944, 43. And by the fall of 1943, he was um, now engaged in uh, basic training. In the spring of 1944, he was off to um, uh, officer school. He spent um, some time at Notre Dame University and then also at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, which ironically and just totally coincidentally was where uh, most of his money of his family had graduated uh, in the years past. And after the war, Dad would return to Southwestern University and graduate from there with a degree in chemical engineering. But here for a short time, he was in Southwestern with the um, V-22 unit and um, doing some last-minute training before his assignment. In uh, January of 1945, Dad was in Newport News, Virginia. Finished with basic training, now with the uh, assignment as an ensign in the United States Navy. The now uh, not quite 20-year-old found himself there celebrating with the commissioning of a brand new light cruiser, the USS Amsterdam. Its designation as CL-101, that stands for a Cleveland-class uh, light cruiser that was uh, built during World War II. There were several different versions. This one was fast, uh, had some uh, tremendous guns on it, and uh, some of the latest uh, technical equipment that was being uh, invented at that time in 1944 and into 1945. So on January 8, 1945, the Amsterdam, nicknamed the Dutchman, was commissioned. And there at uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Dad um, boarded the ship, and uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks, they found themselves in some basic training exercises uh, down the East Coast. Dad's assignment was one of the 47 caliber Mark 16 guns. Uh, this is designated as 6-inch 47 caliber mounted in triple turrets 
The barrel itself of the gun was 25 feet long. The shell weighed 130 pounds. The firing range of these 47 caliber Mark 16s from a light cruiser was over 20,000 yards. Dad's uh, responsibility, uh, I think interestingly enough in this day and time, was down in the bowels of the turret where he manned the computer that um, that directed the uh, the range and fire of those Mark 16 guns. We think about 1945, we don't think too much about computers, but in fact that's what Dad uh, sat there in front of uh, and worked in terms of the um, operations of that uh, triple turret. So in uh, April uh, of 1945, Dad found himself uh, in the Caribbean uh, again uh, with different exercises going along. Uh, there was a short period of time when he was in uh, Florida out of Jacksonville. And one of the first stories that Dad used to tell uh, here was at his short time there uh, out of Jacksonville uh, in the um, spring of 1945. An Italian submarine had been captured in the Atlantic and brought with its crew to Jacksonville, Florida. And so as it was there and the Italian crew was kept uh, captives there uh, in Jacksonville at the base, when the USS Amsterdam arrived and they were looking for some training exercises, Dad would say, it worked out a pretty interesting deal here. He said, um, what they did was in the mornings, they would send the Italian crew on its submarine out off the coast a couple of miles to just go back and forth and back and forth on the surface. And uh, the uh, Amsterdam would sit offshore and uh, fire target practice at the uh, Italian submarine. At the end of the day, the Italian submarine would come back and dock. The Italian crew would get back off and go back into their uh, captive uh, barracks. And then the next day, they would go back out again. Didn't seem to be any great uh, fear that the Italians would uh, sail off in their submarine. And uh, Dad enjoyed telling the story about uh, using the Italian submarine off the coast of Florida for target practice in the spring of 1945. Uh, by the end of April, uh, they had made their way through the uh, Panama Canal. And on May 18th of 1945, were at Pearl Harbor. They spent uh, the summer there, um, now tied in with the Third Fleet under Admiral Halsey. They were, the USS Amsterdam was part of Task Force 38. And so um, one of the things that uh, Dad uh, kept over the years was um, uh, sometime that summer, uh, as they were making their way from Pearl Harbor uh, to the Pacific Theater, uh, where the war was uh, now uh, heating up for its last stages, the um, dad would uh, have an occasion when he would be on watch duty. And one day he uh, was looking at the, uh, the list of the fleet, the 38th task force, at all the ships, at the carriers, and so on. And he took a piece of paper and he wrote it all down and put it in his pocket and kept it. And today we have that uh, list as it was noted uh, on the top deck of the Amsterdam in the summer and fall uh, into 1945. A pretty interesting artifact uh, to have from uh, World War II.
So, uh, into uh, July, uh, Dad found himself now um, uh, with the 3rd uh, Fleet and the 38th Task Force making their way uh, closer and closer uh, to the main islands of Japan. Uh, earlier in June, Okinawa had fallen, and uh, now preparations were underway for a possible invasion of Honshu, the main island of Japan, and others, because the Japanese War Council refused uh, to surrender. So in July, uh, Dad, um, on the USS Amsterdam, was responsible now as they approached the main islands of Japan for a coastal activity. Uh, there was a um, some activity there firing onto some of the military targets there along the coast. Um, among uh, some of the cities that were attacked by this uh, task force included Tokyo itself, uh, Kure, Kobe, and Osaka. As they were preparing to launch another attack uh, onto Tokyo itself on the 15th of August, the Japanese formally surrendered. Nine days earlier, on August 6th, the city of Hiroshima had been uh, devastated by the first detonation of an atomic bomb. Three days later, the same had happened to the smaller but strategic city of Nagasaki. And after several more days, the emperor himself uh, formally surrendered Japan and its empire uh, to the Allied forces. War essentially was coming to an end. The actual signing of the uh, surrender papers would not take place until September 2nd. But between that period of time, during those two weeks, uh, Dad tells the stories of some very interesting experiences that he had. On the 28th of August, the first of the Third Fleet began to make its way to the southern uh, straits that would take them into Tokyo Bay, called the Oraga Straits. Just inside those straits at the southern end of the very large Tokyo Bay and off on the uh, coast to the left would be a naval base called Yokosuka. Yokosuka was a naval base that had been abandoned by the Japanese. They had left behind warehouses full of uh, guns and materials and also uh, literally hundreds of caves and tunnels in and around that area where they had uh, hidden uh, materials and armaments uh, during the latter part of the war uh, when they were being bombed by the Allied forces. On the 30th of August, 1945, the first American vessel, Navy vessel, docked at Yokosuka Naval Base. It was the USS San Diego, CL-53, also a Cleveland-class light cruiser, and it becomes notable as the first American Navy vessel to actually dock uh, on the main islands of Japan. But very close behind, Dad remembered that it was later that same day, August 30th, the USS Amsterdam, the Dutchman, CL-101, also docked nearby at the other end of the Yokosuka uh, naval base. And Dad told some amazing stories about that experience uh, the end of August of 1945. For one thing, he remembered that out in uh, that part of the bay uh, sat the um, rather famous Japanese battleship, the Nagato. 
it had been uh, damaged and uh, left floating uh, out in the uh, southern part of Tokyo Bay and was quite the uh, memorable uh, picture as uh, these young uh, Navy boys sailed into Tokyo Bay for the first time and took a look at that uh, powerful uh, Japanese battleship uh, that had been uh, damaged there and left uh, in Tokyo Bay. But now, uh, as the Amsterdam had actually docked there um, on the uh, at the base, Dad uh, was one of the first uh, to um, leave uh, the ship and walk onto the Japanese mainland. He and a small patrol uh, were given the responsibility of checking out the area, particularly in case there might be any uh, still leftover resistance, because even though the emperor himself had officially surrendered and the people of Japan uh, would reverently obey their emperor, still there could be a possibility of some uh, resistance still in the area. So Dad would tell the story about he and his small patrol uh, leaving the Amsterdam and walking across uh, the base. They made their way across the edge of the, uh, the Japanese naval base and it did appear to be uh, totally abandoned, although in one of the warehouses Dad said they found what looked to have been maybe some meals or some drinks uh, rather hastily left behind, uh, perhaps not minutes earlier, but certainly uh, not that far behind. Whoever had been there in the warehouse, uh, seeing those Navy vessels arrive, uh, took off uh, through the little local village and into the hills nearby off to the west. Dad said we, uh, we left the, the warehouse and went out to the very edge of the base. There was a series of trails that led out the base over into some uh, open country and then out to uh, the village. As they rounded one corner um, of the warehouse and went along a little uh, stairway that, uh, that went to the edge of the base, they encountered a small Japanese girl. Dad said maybe she was seven, eight, nine years old. And she was sort of wandering aimlessly uh, down these, uh, up these stairs when they, the sailor boys came around the corner. And everybody just froze in place, uh, just sort of immobilized by the moment. The little girl, terrified, of course, by what she saw. And uh, the young sailors, kind of surprised to see this uh, little girl kind of wandering around on her own. They tried to uh, smile in her direction. And, uh, and one of the sailors pulled out a candy bar, offered to her. But she was so terrified, she could hardly move. And finally in a sudden burst of, uh, of fear uh, she turned and ran down the stairs and disappeared. So the guys thought that was uh, an interesting little turn of events but it was on into the village uh, at that point to see what else might be going on. That said we, uh, we made our way then off of the base and uh, down th through a little bit of open country until we came to the edge of uh, the small village there on the other side of uh, the base. It appeared to be totally abandoned, and uh, as we walked into the edge of town, again, clearly it looked like everyone had lit out uh, for the hills. And then we looked down at the towards the end of the, the main road there in the village, maybe two blocks away, and there was an old Model T car that was sitting right in the middle of the 
street there in that little Japanese town. And so Dad and some of the guys made their way in that direction, and as they got closer, they realized that there was someone inside the car. It was a, a little, very old uh, Japanese woman sitting in the passenger seat. And as they uh, reached the car, and she was, of course, absolutely paralyzed with fear, uh, they looked to the front of the vehicle and saw her, apparently her husband, an elderly Japanese man, and he was trying to um, get the uh, the car started. Uh, he was having trouble. He had half of the hood opened and was kind of looking haplessly. Um, and he saw those uh, sailors coming and was just, again, terrified. You know, one of the rumors that had been, the story that had been spread by the Japanese government was that these uh, Americans were, were, were brutes, were beasts, um, and that they would ravage and pillage and, and kill anyone that they came across, and, and they became sort of monsters in the eyes of the Japanese citizens. So when these uh, sailors showed up, it was uh, truly terrifying uh, that the Japanese people believed that they would be you know, massacred, would be slaughtered um, when the uh, Americans arrived. And so Dad and a couple of the other guys were standing there at the car, and uh, the little old lady was frightened, and the little old man in the front of the car was just just stopped what he was doing and was just staring at them. Uh, they looked like they knew that they were now done for, that these sailors had captured them. <laughs> so Dad said, so a couple of the guys went over and peered inside uh, the motor of the old Model T, realized that there was what was wrong with it, juggled a few things here and there, and then um, took the man kindly by the arm and sat him in the driver's seat, uh, started up the Model T for him, and um, and sent him on his way. And Dad said, so we all stood there as the little Model T uh, stumbled along the road uh, heading out of town. It stopped a um, 100 yards or so uh, down the road, and the old man just kind of turned around and looked back at the sailors who were standing watching. And you could kind of see in his eyes, thinking to himself, these are monsters, these are brutes, these young guys who just helped me with my car and helped me to escape their clutches. Somehow it just didn't seem uh, altogether clear anymore exactly what was going on. And the little car finally puttered on and disappeared. So Dad said, uh, so anyway, so we watched it go for a while and again realized that uh, there didn't seem to be anybody left uh, in the village at all. And, and they walked down to, um, the, to the next corner and there was kind of a, a, a concrete slab at, at the corner here of this particular uh, block on this uh, little village. And what appeared to be, at least in their eyes, Dad never was quite clear how to explain what they saw, but it appeared to be what we would think of as a, a backboard uh, for a basketball. Now, there, there wasn't any net or rim. It was just a board up on a post. But to the, to the sailors from the United States, uh, this had all the trappings of uh, what seemed to have been maybe a basketball court. That would seem totally out of place. But it's what the guys remembered. And so Dad said, so... Five or six of us walked out onto the slab, and uh, one of them took a, an imaginary basketball and started dribbling. 
And then he took that imaginary ball and he passed it to the next guy who dribbled around for a while and passed it to another. And then one of the guys made his way towards the backboard and the imaginary ball was passed to him and he went up for a layup and uh, the guys cheered. And then someone else stepped out and threw the imaginary basketball back in and Somebody started dribbling again, and so for a few minutes, the guys were just letting off a little steam, having a little fun with this uh, imaginary pickup uh, basketball game on a concrete slab in a Japanese village. And he said, uh, so a few minutes had gone by, and we kind of looked around because there was, I don't know, I don't know why we did, but we looked in, in a couple of the houses nearby, we could actually see some faces uh, staring out the window. And uh, some of them were children. Some of them seemed to be folks maybe a little bit older. But all of a sudden, we looked to the next house and next. And uh, many of the people had remained in the village, were hiding, cowering for fear in their homes. But someone apparently had glanced out the window and seen these uh, Americans acting very strangely, running around on the concrete slab, um, playing some sort of imaginary game. And pretty soon, a few of the young children kind of wandered out and uh, began to watch. And again, the sailors had a candy bar here and there that they would uh, reach in the direction of the kids. And pretty soon, one of the kids took one and then the others. And it wasn't long before they had actually, Dad said, gathered quite a crowd uh, to watch them play this imaginary basketball game. Um, I just, uh, I just it was always one of my favorite stories, uh, listening to Dad talk about it. But again, particularly in the setting, the setting here is, you know, three days before the formal surrender of the Japanese Empire, which would uh, be known as VJ Day and uh, in, the, in the Second World War. And here, thousands of miles away from home, the so-called occupying force of the Allies in the United States, um, we're a bunch of 20-year-old boys playing pickup basketball in a Japanese village. Yeah, pretty great story. Another story that Dad told was uh, that sometime uh, after that, uh, there was uh, a bank uh, there associated with, uh, with the village, uh, perhaps maybe in a larger town nearby. And the Japanese had opened the bank. Some entrepreneurial Japanese merchants uh, realizing that these uh, Americans might want some souvenirs, some yen or something like that. So they were uh, selling them to the, uh, to the Marines and the sailors for a pretty exorbitant price. My dad, an ensign and somewhat in charge, decided that that was uh, a scam that, uh, that couldn't go on. And so he went into the bank and closed the bank down. Um, much to the uh, frustration of some of the Marines and the sailors uh, who were trying to get some kind of souvenir one way or another. And then one of the supervising officers, one of the dad's superior officers, showed up and pretty much reamed dad out for doing that. Dad remembered that uh, they didn't take too kindly to what he had done. He thought it was the right thing <laughs> at the right time. He also noted that shortly thereafter, uh, a lot of the Marines started uh, walking by with small... Uh, Japanese flags and uh, as souvenirs, which uh, seemed pretty interesting, except almost every single Marine and almost every single sailor coming from down the street had one of these uh, Japanese war flags. 
And Dad thought that was kind of curious, and so he sort of followed against the trail of the guys coming up the street, and he went around the corner, and there was a, a backyard, back lot, where, again, a couple of Japanese merchants had gotten this idea, and they had these huge, long strips of cloth, and they were cutting up these cloths in small little pieces, and with some red paint, were painting the, uh, the Japanese war symbol on, on each of these uh, white cloths and uh, selling them as fast as they could make them. So as far as the uh, veracity uh, and integrity of those war flags, not so sure about that, but you can bet those Marines uh, coming home uh, certainly had a souvenir uh, to talk about. Dad has one other memory that's an interesting memory. Um, he remembered for years and always told the story that three days later on September 2nd, Task Force 38 joined up with the rest of the Third Fleet and that the USS Amsterdam was only about two ships away um, uh, there with the USS Missouri where the official uh, surrender took place. And Dad told the story for almost all of his life about uh, having been just a couple of ships over from where the actual surrender took place, which is pretty cool, you got to admit. Until some years ago, Dad and I were working on his memoirs, and so we were looking up uh, some references and looking up doing some other research on U.S. Amsterdam and on all these stories that he was telling, and realized that the USS Amsterdam was not there. Um, it was down at Yokosuka, but it was not up in the upper Tokyo Bay on September 2nd when that took place. It actually arrived in Tokyo Bay, the upper part, three days later on September 5th. So it's an interesting sort of non-memory. We're so, you know, tuned into that experience, into that story, that Dad somewhere along the way had just it had been built into his memory and became part of a story that actually, well, you know, wasn't the story. Except in many ways became even a better story once we found out that he hadn't actually been there at all, but had always remembered uh, that event somehow um, in his uh, in his memory. Uh, the um, Amsterdam uh, left uh, sometime later in September, made its way uh, to Okinawa, where it took some Marines on board who were injured and awaiting transport uh, back to the States. The um, Amsterdam uh, arrived uh, back in, uh, in Oregon, in October of 1945 and participated in the Navy Day celebrations that went on for two or three weeks there in Oregon and then made its way down to California. Uh, Dad disembarked there uh, with the uh, promotion to Lieutenant JG uh, and made his way to San Francisco where his bride was waiting for him. The Amsterdam went back to Pearl Harbor, made one more trip, was ultimately decommissioned uh, in 1947. Uh, I like to remember my dad's stories. Um, he had a, it was a long time before he'd tell them, but once he did, uh, we've all really enjoyed uh, listening to him tell those stories. I hope you enjoyed it too. This is for my dad, um, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll come back again in a couple of weeks with another story. Until then, I'm Paul Spellman. I hope you've enjoyed this. I have a story about that. Take care.